Why is apologizing so difficult for autistics? Today, we're going to talk about the challenges that autistic children and adults face when asked to say, I'm sorry. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. It might just be hard because it's the hardest words in the English language to pronounce next to Worcestershire. Well, okay. I wouldn't even try that one. (laughs) I know, but you're (laughs) I think you owe me an apology for that. (laughs) I'm sorry. See, that wasn't so hard. So we're talking about apologizing today because this is actually a real challenge for our kiddos. So again, we do have a three and four-year-old. They will be four and five soon, though. And one of the challenges that we have found has particularly been their inability or refusal to apologize when they do something wrong, particularly when they're kind of bullying each other just a little bit. Well, I think it generally goes mostly one way. It's usually the oldest one doesn't want to say sorry to the youngest one. I feel like the youngest one doesn't really care as much if I'm thinking correctly. Well, she just kind of minds her own. So it's not too much of a problem with her. But I have noticed that her issue is more just like the nonverbal aspect where she doesn't really apologize, but it's like she doesn't really communicate. Right. I think for the oldest one, the words themselves actually carry a lot of weight because she will try and talk her way out of having to say, I'm sorry, or I apologize or anything altogether. So yeah, yeah. it's definitely a fun ride of sorts. Yeah, definitely not a fun ride. Um, but one of the things that we notice is for our eldest, there seems to be like a really significant aversion to the phrase, I'm sorry. So we have tried many different ways to try to help her understand apologizing. Part of that disconnect, though, I think stems from the lack of awareness and understanding of why an apology is warranted, what an apology actually means, and what the outcome of an apology can be. Right. And I mean, so Obviously, we say that it starts off with she's having a hard time saying, I'm sorry, or I apologize. But I mean, obviously, it goes much deeper than that. I mean, then there's the association of when I say this, I am kind of accepting ownership of something that I have done wrong to the other person. And then sometimes there's kind of a guilt that might be held there. Just saying, I'm sorry, I feel like carries a lot of different components. So it's not just getting over, oh, okay, you use the word, I'm sorry. There, It goes much deeper as far as kind of the emotional connection to those words and kind of giving up something that she oftentimes doesn't feel like she needs to. <laughs> so since this is a problem that our kids struggle with, I actually wanted to talk about it also from an adult autistic perspective, because this is actually something that I personally have struggled with in the past. And the reason why often surprises people, because it's not what you think. When it comes to apologies, when it comes to that and autism, sometimes the reason you don't receive an apology is not because the kid is trying to be proud. I got that all the time growing up. People are just like, oh, you're too proud to apologize. And that wasn't at all what was going through my head. To me, pride basically means you know you're wrong and you don't want to admit that you're wrong and therefore you're refusing to apologize. But honestly, what's happening half the time, at least in my mind growing up as a child, is not that I thought I was wrong and refusing to apologize. 
It was that I genuinely believed I was right and I didn't understand how I could be wrong. And it was really a matter of like a different perspective at looking at the same problem, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of hard because like if the child doesn't feel that they are in the wrong, that creates another element of kind of confusion as well. Because I mean, unless it's a very clear-cut case. I mean, we have a um, a comment basically saying like essentially if it's not modeled by the parents, that might be one reason why the the child might struggle as far as just that behavior in general because they don't have a good model of how to use their language um, when it impacts them. But you're right. If if you're forced to say you're sorry when you don't feel that it's necessary, then that could also cause some turmoil for the child, or I guess in some cases the adult as well, if you're forced to do something and you don't feel that you have wronged anyone or should give up any ground, then that that is one struggle there. And I think there's two reasons for that. One of them is oftentimes when people are seeking an apology, they might be assigning intent. And that's something that is often misunderstood when it comes to autism, is people misunderstand an autistic person's intent. That has happened to me a lot growing up where people think I do or or say certain things with this like malicious intent or malintent, but it's not. It's just that I'm a blunt person. I think black and white and literally. And so for me, I might see a solution that seems to be common sense. And so I just kind of blurt it out. Whereas someone might think that I am intentionally saying something mean or something that's going to hurt their feelings. And then it's like, oh, apologize for hurting their feelings. But that wasn't the intent, right? The intent was for me to provide them a solution to what I thought was their problem that they're complaining about. So it's really important to be able to distinguish that difference because in those situations, I honestly think it's not always necessary to ask an autistic or even appropriate to ask an autistic child or adult to apologize for a situation where the issue was really a disconnect in communication and not a malintent. Because the onus shouldn't always be on the autistic person to communicate correctly. The neurotypical person who communicates differently should also bear half of the burden of communicating effectively with the autistic person. I mean, that is the struggle because, I mean, you're playing essentially by two different roles. One person isn't aware of what the situation is, if there was any wrongdoing, and then the other one feels hurt because they're playing by uh, standard norms that have been established by kind of the neurotypical society. So where do you draw the line with, okay, this person is at fault or this person isn't, and kind of finding the gray area in between. Sometimes there's a a clear-cut case as far as like one child will hit the other child. That's a little bit more straightforward as far as kind of more aggression towards another child or kid. So that's a little bit easier to kind of see, okay, you were in the wrong because you just chose to kind of lash out and strike your brother. So I mean, that that might be one reason. But as far as what to say, if you said something slightly too harsh, that's kind of a lot of gray area. And I mean, honestly, that depends on different families. I mean, different cultures. I mean, if you're in a more formal setting versus a more uh, relaxed one, I mean, there's so many different variables that also come into play there. It, it isn't a easy um, response, I guess. Yeah. So again, one of the things to know is trying to get to the intent of that behavior. Were they intending something malicious? I mean, if the kid was purposefully trying to intend harm, obviously an apology is actually warranted in that situation. But I think reviewing the intent is the first step. The second one is, again, helping them understand. A lot of times with autism, they might not understand. And it's it's not due to a lack of empathy. This is something that gets kind of 
mixed up. Some people think that autistic people lack empathy and autistic children lack empathy. And honestly, that's sometimes used as part of the diagnosis process with the empathy quotient. But it's not really a lack of empathy. It's a lack of expressing empathy in a way that a neurotypical person would. So that's where I think things get a little murky because like for me, I would consider myself a highly empathetic person. But Matt is smirking because it's not always obvious because the difference is in order for me to express empathy, I need to understand what the problem is to know it warrants empathy. And that's not what happens with the neurotypical. A neurotypical has great mirror neurons. They can see other people's reactions. They know when someone's upset and they know that they should be empathetic. For us, it's a little bit more of a logical puzzle piece and we need data, we need information before we know that the correct output is, oh, this is a situation where I need to be empathetic. Right. And that, again, is also a struggle because from what you're saying, essentially, you express empathy through okay, when this happens, I say X, Y, and Z. As where I perceive empathy, okay, you have the language component, but then there's also kind of the physical component of if this person is upset, oh, okay, you put your hand on like their shoulder and kind of like rub their shoulder to make them feel better. So it kind of goes kind of hand in hand. You have the language component, oh, I'm sorry, it's okay, don't worry, you'll get it next time. And also the like physical touch component collaborating or working together as like one entity, not an isolated, I said this, it should resolve problem. It's kind of more organic as far as more types of communication kind of blended together. So yeah, things get complicated quick. Yeah, that's the thing with autism. There is no organic anything. The only thing that we can really rely on organically is that we're not going to know what's going on unless we do some digging, basically. I think that's where a little bit of that misunderstanding happens too, is sometimes people are like, my kid will never say sorry. I know they know what they're doing and I don't know how to get them to apologize. The thing is, knowing what they're doing doesn't necessarily mean they understand why it's wrong. They don't necessarily understand how they're hurting someone. So like the example of like, maybe your kid kicked somebody. Well, maybe that kid, your child, is undersensitive to pain, right? So if you kicked your child, they might be like, eh, not a big deal. Like, I'm undersensitive to pain. That doesn't bother me. But they don't realize that other kids are not undersensitive to pain, that that kick can really hurt another kid. So it's things like that, that putting it in their perspective, trying to bring those examples and show your child where what they feel and experience differs from how other people feel and experience might be helpful. And you can do that through a variety of ways. Again, I always talk about social stories because social stories is a great way to illustrate this. If you have younger kids, there's also tons of TV shows that already do this stuff like Dave and Ava, Cocomelon, Sesame Street. They all have these sorts of kind of what to do when you upset a kid scenarios. But if you have an older kid, you can also do some role-playing activities at home. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, we've noticed, especially for ours, if they are watching a TV show and they will kind of reenact what they see. So it, it kind of is helpful there. So if we're able to put on whatever episode that they talk about, oh, you accidentally hurt someone or you accidentally hit them or whatever, it gives them more or less a script to kind of see how the characters engage saying they're sorry or excuse me and how they kind of resolve the mini conflict from there. So, I mean, I definitely think that is one way when the kids are a little bit younger. It seems like for our sometimes we 
kind of get the repeat offender where it's the oldest one is wanting to be kind of left alone and the younger one wants to come over and see what she's doing. And that's kind of where we kind of get the physical altercation. She'll kind of push her or kick her or whatever to kind of get her away. So we kind of have like repeat offenses as far as kind of a little bit more aggression when she wants to be left alone. So that's kind of right now where we're kind of working on our challenges. Which is honestly pretty good because in that scenario, you can see that there's a pattern. So another thing to do is try to assess a pattern and see when your child is behaving in a way that warrants an apology. So like for our kid, we pretty much always know it's going to be at some point where she's hanging out with her sister because she's the one who she pretty much attempts to bully all the time. So we already know to be on higher alert for that. And then we know that it'll typically happen like if there's a not great at sharing scenario where the kid has something that the other one wants, or it might be just like a new toy or something like that. Like we have an idea of what could potentially trigger that argument. And so if you already recognize some of these patterns as to when you think your kid might be in that scenario, that would be a good scenario to try to either role play in advance or tackle through like a social story beforehand. Now, if it's already happening and you see your kid starting up with poor behavior, essentially, during that moment, I would interject and kind of model what they should be saying or doing. If it's too late and they've already done whatever it is and they have to apologize and they're not willing to apologize, then you can, again, model that behavior. So show them how to apologize, pretend you're them for a second and show them what they've got to do and then kind of keep coaxing them or having them practice with you. But putting too much pressure without them understanding why is going to make it fruitless. So I think the first step is, again, making sure they understand why first. And then once you're there, then work on the actual apologizing part. And I think initially the issue that we ran into was because she had built up in her mind that saying, I'm sorry, is apparently the worst thing ever because I'm not sure if she feels upset, sad, guilt, whatever, when she has to say it. So she's built up kind of this boogeyman in her head. And then when we are kind of saying like, okay, you hurt your sister, you need to say, I'm sorry. She already thinks that it's a horrible thing that she has to do. So she will put up a fight even to just say, I'm sorry. So I think it has the double mountain there. First, getting her to recognize that she did something wrong, but then also going a step further and apologizing to her sister. So yeah, I mean, if you're able to avoid building that boogeyman with language and kind of building it up as being worse than whatever the offense is altogether, that might also be beneficial as well. Yes. And again, modeling it at home. So you guys pretend like you get in a fight in front of your kids and then have one of you guys apologize to the other parent in front of your kid and show how to model that relationship. So have those fake fights or real fights and make sure to apologize publicly in front of them so they know how it's done and they know mommy and daddy do it too. The other thing is that this is not limited to verbal kiddos. It's often a challenge because parents are like, well, my kid's nonverbal. How am I supposed to get them to apologize? You don't have to do a verbal apology. First, I want to mention briefly, if your kid is verbal, they might have an aversion to just the phrase, I'm sorry. I know my kid does. She cannot say I'm sorry. I'm not sure if it's a pride thing or an aversion thing. I think it's more of a PDA, pathological demand avoidance type of thing, which is also common with autism. And so she really doesn't want to say the word I'm sorry. So we just switched it up to say I apologize. And she's cool with that. So she'll say I apologize, but she will not say I'm sorry. So play with the words. If snickerdoodle means I'm sorry to you guys, use snickerdoodle. As long as everyone is in agreement of what that word means, it doesn't matter. It's the intent that matters. 
I actually found some pretty cool things. Um, this I'll show you guys. And for you guys listening on the audio podcast, I've got these little stuffed animals here. And they're basically a blue stuffed animal. There's going to be some Velcro pulling. So I'm sorry about the sound. But this guy is, ooh, he's translucent. translucent. <laughs> uh, he's blue. And he says, oops. And then there's a little purple kind of monster stuffed animal. And his name is Ouch. And so these are two little stuffed animals that you could get on Amazon. I'll post the link in the description of this episode so you guys can find it on YouTube. And so they're called Ouch and Oops. And they're two little stuffed animals. What you're supposed to do is whenever your kid does something wrong and they need to apologize, and let's say they're averse to apologizing, you just take the little guy who is oops, and then you take the little guy who is ouch, and you give ouch to the person who needs the apology. So this is the person who's been hurt, whose feelings has been hurt. And this is the little purple sad monster named ouch. And then you give the blue monster, whose name is Oops, and he's the one that for some reason the camera really wants to make a ghost. And so he's Oops, and he's the apology monster. When you take these, you give the apology monster. That one goes from the person who basically committed the sin, the person who hurt the other person. They have to give the Oops one to the person holding the ouch. If the ouch person, the person whose feelings were hurt, if they are nonverbal, or they have a hard time expressing their feelings of when they're hurt. Like our littlest, she gets hurt all the time and she's minimally verbal sometimes. So she cannot express when she's hurt. So we give her the ouch monster and she, it's her job to give ouch to her sister when she feels that her sister has hurt her feelings or has done something mean. So she gives the ouch to her sister and then her sister, in response, in order to apologize, since she is not willing to apologize verbally or cannot if she's nonverbal, she gives her back the oops. Sure. So we've introduced these to our kids just to show, okay, this is how we can model them and not necessarily have to use the words, I'm sorry, I apologize. So our youngest is able to kind of hold the little one and give it to her sister. And so since they're both young in age, um, three and four, they love stuffed animals. So it is helpful that they both don't see these stuffed animals as like, oh, I did something wrong or, oh, this is bad. They just see them as stuffed animals. So the nice thing is they're already put their guard down a little bit. So they're able to use these and kind of exchange them. And it's kind of more of a like they're playing with their little toys and they're almost reenacting the the scene of this one got hurt, this one is saying, I'm sorry. So they kind of reenact with the dolls, the uh, apology. And it seems to work out really well because it kind of takes off the feelings or the pressure of having to say, I'm sorry. And it kind of pushes it to the dolls. So our oldest, who frequently kind of hurts her little sister, she doesn't feel that she necessarily has that much pressure to say, I'm sorry, because it's the little doll that she's playing with. So she has no problem to exchange the feelings to say, I'm sorry. And I mean, so far, we've only had it for probably like a week or so. And we've already had, I think, some pretty good interactions where there's not a meltdown when our oldest has to say she's sorry. And our youngest as well likes to kind of play with the little dolls when she gets hurt. We do try to only use them when they are absolutely necessary. So we don't let our kids play with them just as they would with any dolls. They kind of have to be in that situation where there has been a 
pain that's happened to one of them in order to kind of use the dolls. So kind of similar to like when we had mentioned our potty training technique where we had like the the special toy that they would only have in the bathroom. This is very similar. We only let them use the oops and I'm sorry doll whenever they need to kind of reenact one of these uh, situations. So, so far we've had good success. I'm hoping that, I mean, if you listeners have young kids, hopefully this might be an option for you just to kind of at least start the conversation with the little ones. So they kind of get the idea of, okay, this is how it should take place. And I can kind of play with this doll to reenact what I should be saying. And then hopefully from there, as they get a little bit older, they can kind of grow out of that phase if they're able to. Like I said, these are the Oops and Ouchie dolls, and I will put the information on that again in the video description on YouTube. But we have found success with it. Uh, We've only used it like once because we just got these, but it was like immediate success. I was really surprised that immediately without any sort of fuss, our eldest gave the doll to the other one to apologize. We had to kind of prompt the younger one to give her the, hey, you hurt my feelings, ouchie doll, because she still didn't quite get it. But when it came to the apology, the oopsie doll, the older one gave it to her right away. And then she gave her a hug, like unprompted, she gave her a hug. And I thought that that was like the most beautiful thing. And I really think because they are stuffed animals, it allows her to put her guard down so she doesn't see, I don't know, as far as like maybe like the pressure just to say, I'm sorry, it's just kind of her engaging with the doll with her sister. So it's kind of more of like a play apology of sorts. But I mean, it it kind of helps bridge the gap until we're able to work through some of the kind of the, the more complex emotions with saying, I'm sorry. And again, I just want to emphasize that when it comes to our autistic kiddos and adults, because I'll put myself in that boat, and I know I've had this discussion with Matt many times, the apology or the lack of an apology is, I think, more complex than a lot of people give credit for. It's not so simple. It really is not simple as, you did this thing that's wrong. Why don't you apologize? I don't get why it's so hard for you to apologize. Why are you so proud? That's what I got like growing up. And I just never understood. I was like, what am I apologizing for? I don't understand. What did I do wrong? I thought I was being nice. I've had these instances with Matt where I'll do something that I think is considered like nice because it's something I would like for me, for example. But then like for you, turns out it's not like you don't like it. It's frustrating because as an autistic person, it's hard to read those cues sometimes. So you don't really know before the bad thing happens that it's going to happen. I think that sometimes neurotypicals, I don't want to call you guys neurotypicals. That's kind of like I'm saying in a mean way, I guess. For people who are not autistic, sometimes it's not clear or instinctive to understand that that's a poor communication that's happening there and there's not really an intent to do harm. I mean, because sometimes you'll be sitting on the sofa and you won't know anything's wrong. And then the oops doll will just fall into your lap and I'll be like, oh, how did that happen? Let's just have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll just throw the ouch doll back at you. We haven't used these on our for our apologies yet. <laughs> yeah, they're great for nonverbal kiddos. So again, I mentioned this briefly, but I can't stress how valuable they can be as a tool for nonverbal kiddos because you can still teach your nonverbal child to apologize by giving them a stuffed animal that they can hand as an apology instead. And honestly, you can expand this idea and this concept to other emotions. It doesn't just have to be an apology. If you have a nonverbal kid or even just a minimally verbal or, you know, somebody who struggles talking about their emotions, you can have these dolls with like different emotions on them, for example, and have that kid bring it to you when they're feeling that emotion. So like the ouch, that's vague enough that you could say, 
they're feeling sadness, they're feeling pain, they're feeling anger, whatever it may be. You can get other dolls online too with different emotions and kind of teach or train your child who may be nonverbal or minimally verbal to express those feelings to you by bringing you the doll when they're feeling that thing. And the way that you do that initially is exposing them to that doll when you know they're feeling that thing. So if you know that they're feeling sad, Every time they're feeling sad, bring the sad doll and say, oh, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling sad? And then show them the doll. Over time, they will form that connection to whichever one of those dolls it is. It's kind of like a hands-on pex in a way. It's like a stuffed animal version of a pex. Right. I mean, honestly, this is kind of miles ahead of where we've been in the past because usually what happened was our oldest wouldn't want to say she's sorry or she apologizes. So it would start the meltdown where we'd have to kind of remove her from the situation and get her into kind of a safe sensory location with low lighting just so she can kind of re-engage more peaceful area. And then upon when she finally does feel better, then she's kind of being able to be a uh, released out <laughs> with her sister to kind of see released if to, to the wild well that's what i was gonna say because after she comes out of kind of like her little sensory nook with like the lower lights then she i mean feels a little bit better and then we can kind of try and re-engage the conversation a little bit but this seems like we almost don't even have to go through the step of kind of the meltdown sensory room back into conversation so i mean it's much more helpful from what we were originally doing Speaking of a sensory room, one of our sponsors today is the Galaxy Projector 2.0. And we are big fans. We are going to play a little ad here, but this is just a great way to help support our show and at the same time have a product that would really help out your kid. Just take a look. Do you want to know how to create the perfect sensory space? It's the Galaxy Projector 2 from Galaxy Lamps. You can put this lamp in a bedroom for better sleep or create a sensory nook as a getaway when overstimulated. The Galaxy Lamp projects relaxing galaxies and lets you feel immersed in space. It comes with an app where you can change colors, brightness, rotation speeds, and even set automatic on-off timers. Help yourself or a loved one achieve a sense of physical and mental relaxation for a soothing sensory effect. Check out the link in the description box below. So again, that's the Galaxy Projector 2.0. We started including some ads into our podcast now simply because we are trying to upgrade our studio and keep our programs running and clicking through those links and using our link, you will get yourself an awesome product, but we will also earn a commission that'll help us support the podcast and Autism Wish. So it's a win-win. And uh, with that, I'll say, was it I ain't too late to apologize? What are the lyrics? Gosh, (laughs) I'm terrible at lyrics. I feel like I should get scolded for that. It's not too late to... It's not too late to apologize. Oh, no. Come on. You're from Colorado. You should know know this. Isn't this your people's band? (sighs) One Republic? Yeah. This is a shame. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I'm drawing a blank. This is a shame. I apologize for everybody listening out there because this is truly a shame. So that's pretty much all we have today for this episode. Again, I just want to encourage everybody, if you are listening to this episode or you're watching it on YouTube, just remember apologizing is a challenge for autistic kiddos and it's not always for the reason you think. Our kiddos aren't typically trying to be proud. They're not typically trying to weasel their way. Oftentimes, it's honestly just a misunderstanding, a lack of awareness, not truly a lack of empathy, but at least a lack of neurotypical style empathy. And so it just takes a little work to help them understand what the problem is. Try to get them on that same page so that we can work towards an apology. 
and also adapt the apology to a way that's easier for them to access, whether it's through these cool dolls, which again, I'll post a link to those in the YouTube video. And for those of you listening out there, just go to youtube.com slash at autism wish, check out the video, and I will have that link in that description there available for you guys. And one of our listeners jumped in and it is, it's too late to apologize. Yeah, I think it's too late for us to apologize for that butchering. <laughs> uh, at least we finally. <laughs> Thank you, out what listeners. It was. <laughs> you see, our embracers got our back. That's another fun thing. If you are listening to this live, you can tune in live, and we will catch your comments live. So there we go. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for sticking around. Remember, it's never too late to apologize, right? Especially with the dolls. It's actually the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I still got it wrong. Close enough. All right. See you, everybody. Have a good one. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at autism wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.